You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored Episode 71. To start off, if you listened to the last episode of Belabored, you know that there is a massive strike going on at oil refineries. Since we discussed it last time, it is now in its third week with a total of nearly 5,000 workers on the picket lines around the country at some 11 refineries in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Texas, California, and Washington state. They are getting support from environmentalists as well as other labor activists. The Labor Network for Sustainability has called for support for the strike. Green groups from the Sierra Club to Communities for a Better Environment have issued statements of solidarity and joined picket lines. And the California Nurses Association has also joined picket lines in solidarity with, quote, frontline workers who are going to see when something is wrong. As we discussed last week, this is the largest strike in the oil industry since 1980, coming at a time when oil prices are down and oil companies are looking to cut costs wherever they can. And as listeners of this podcast know all too well, that usually means workers being squeezed. That a cost-cutting oil industry is likely to cut back on safety first is and should be an issue of concern to everyone, whether or not you live near a refinery. According to one story, managers and replacement workers are literally sleeping at the refineries, a novel strategy perhaps for not technically crossing a picket line. Um, In Texas, ExxonMobil offered the workers at one refinery $4,500 bonuses in order to break away from the national pattern bargaining agreement and negotiate directly with that particular refinery. And in perhaps the most interesting development, the Tesoro logistics workers at the port of Long Beach, themselves outside of the pattern bargaining agreement, may join the strike as they negotiate their separate contract and as labor tensions continue to heighten at the port. And in other Pacific Coast labor news, there has been an ongoing uh, paralysis at the nation's ports up and down the West Coast due to a contract dispute between the Longshore Workers Union and the Pacific Maritime Association, that is the employers group that basically uh, runs the ports. As the uh, contract negotiations have dragged on, they've officially reached an impasse. The Obama administration has dispatched Labor Secretary Tom Perez to go in and help facilitate the negotiations. There has meanwhile been a media blackout, so no one knows exactly what's going on. But it appears that one of the major sticking points has been the arbitrator for the union negotiations. The labor groups say that it is uh, unfair and that the system is stacked against the workers. The Pacific Maritime Association wants to keep things as is. While that impasse drags on, the uh, traffic at the ports has basically slowed to a trickle. Um, Many industry and retail groups have expressed alarm, saying that they want to get their goods moving. But uh, the longshore workers say that uh, you should blame the Pacific Maritime Association because they are the ones who are deliberately uh, blocking the negotiations and refusing to negotiate in good faith. Meanwhile, many of the community members have come out in solidarity with the Longshore Workers Union, and uh, it remains to be seen whether the Longshore Workers Union will ultimately uh, prevail, but it does seem that things are finally reaching ahead, and um, there are going to be many, many angry businesses, uh, along with many angry workers, if no one can get to work. So we'll see what happens. In some rare good news around here, the Brooklyn technicians at Cablevision, the cable and internet provider owned by James Dolan, perhaps most famous as the owner of Madison Square Garden and the New York Knicks and Rangers, voted to join the Communications Workers of America, oh, back in January of 2012. 
This Saturday, they finally were able to vote to approve their first contract over over three years of union busting that most notoriously saw every other worker in the company except for the unionized Brooklyn Techs get an average of a 14% raise. I have a story up at The Nation that digs inside what it was like for the workers to keep fighting for this long, and here's a clip from Cablevision Tech Clarence Adams telling you a little bit more about what he had to do day by day to keep up their spirits. The hardest times were the firings. The firings really, it, what it did was it, it made a lot of people feel like um, that they didn't have any power. Right. They, you know, if they can get rid of these guys when there was a union voted in, then you know what is it? What more? You know what? What else can we possibly do? That was the feeling they felt deflated. Um, so it took a lot of communication from both sides, the guys that were fired as well as the guys that were still there, right. to basically keep the lines of communication open because there was a lot of finger pointing. People didn't know who to trust. They felt very uneasy knowing that it just took a matter of just 13 minutes to fire <laughs> 22, right. 22 people there. Yeah. You know, and so, and it was in, it was very embarrassing. You know, to, you know, here right. you got guys ranging between twenty, you know, five to twenty years experience, mm-hmm. being you know let out uh, by police escort, mm-hmm. and so, you know, the overall feeling for those guys was, man, you know, who would have thought that wanting to speak with management with an open door policy that was established right. for us to do so right. would cost you your job. Right. So that was really the thing that that was, like I said, that was really very vital in keeping us together was the communication. The Cablevision workers became famous around the city for their struggle and their musical stylings as a handful of techs formed a rap group and wrote songs about the union and their fight. They've inspired, of course, other workers, including the Chicago fast food workers whose music we use as Belabored's theme song. So congratulations on your contract, guys. Illinois' new governor, Bruce Rauner, fired an opening salvo in his war on public sector unions with a sweeping executive order that would unilaterally bar public sector unions from uh, collecting uh, mandatory fees from non-union workers. These are also known as uh, fair share fees. And if you remember the big labor story last year that went to the Supreme Court um, in the case of Harris v. Quinn, it was these dues um, collected by public sector unions um, that were the source of controversy. Um, In reality, this is basically a pretty common sense measure that unions use to prevent uh, what's known as free riders. Um, And it's seen as necessary to finance the functions of a union um, as long as the contract that everyone, union or not, works under is protecting all workers at that workplace. Rauner has effectively uh, said no to that and built on the uh, rationale in the Supreme Court's ruling when it ruled against um, the union in that case. And this is basically um, putting public sector unionism in jeopardy, some say, because it is going to severely uh, damage their ability to uh, maintain their traditional functioning and and, uh, uh, undermine their finances. Um, This folds into a broader wave of anti-union legislation and policies that are um, taking root across the country, particularly as right-to-work laws and um, other public sector union restrictions um, are making it harder for uh, unions in the public 
public sector, traditionally a labor stronghold, to organize. Um, this uh, might remind you of the war on public sector unions that Governor Scott Walker waged a couple years back in Wisconsin. All these moves are basically GOP tactics to pump up the base, pump up uh, donations during campaign times. And it sounds like, according to the New Republic, that the Koch brothers are uh, very much uh, players in this game. Scott Walker himself was able to raise about $22.6 million from outside groups, including $10 million from the Koch-funded Americans for Prosperity, by sort of pushing this anti-union agenda. And now we see other uh, state executives doing the same thing across the country. But it all may be headed back to the Supreme Court because Bruce Rauner knows that he actually had to use an executive action because the legislature in Illinois is still controlled by the Democrats. So it's back to the Supreme Court, perhaps, to make another uh, First Amendment argument over whether or not this is actually, uh, you know, this actually uh, counts as a violation of uh, the First Amendment rights of of workers by collecting so-called mandatory union dues. Basically, this is is nothing short of an all-out assault on uh, public sector unionism and collective bargaining. And once uh, executives are able to go after the public sector, that's really going to make it far more difficult for workers in all sectors, private or public, to organize. H.N. Pooh is the MacArthur Genius Grant Award-winning founder of Domestic Workers United, director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, co-founder of Caring Across Generations, and, on top of all of that, the author of a new book, Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. She's currently touring the book around the country, holding conversations with people in different cities about how to prepare families for the need for care and how to press elected officials to do something about our broken care work infrastructure. Thank you for joining us, H.N. So the premise of your book is that we need a new care grid, a new kind of infrastructure to face the elder boom that we're facing as baby boomers get older. Um, Can you start by telling us about how home care became the preferred way for elders to age? So the dominant way that people receive long-term care in this country is actually through the nursing home and institutional model. And For many, many years, advocates have been calling for change in the nursing home system because it's uh, been rife with um, lots of problems, both in terms of how the clients or their patients are treated and the sort of factory-like nature of institutions, the way that they can be incredibly dehumanizing And then also the way that the staff are treated, where um, they're responsible, that most institutions are way understaffed, and there's just um, a culture within the nursing home industry and sector where um, everyone is overstretched and um, people are not receiving the kinds of care that they need in order to secure and enhance their dignity. And my own experience of it was with my grandfather on my father's side who spent the last three months of his life in a nursing home. And it was an experience I'll never forget visiting him where he was in a room with about half a dozen other people, um, half of whom were completely unmoving and still, and the other half were wailing in pain and suffering and 
my grandfather hadn't eaten or slept for what seemed like days. Um, he was afraid. Um, he was convinced that he was going to die. And indeed, he did pass away after three months. And um, it was an incredibly dehumanizing experience and really memorable in that it haunts me today. Um, and I think that there are many other kinds of uh, horror stories, as well as other examples of nursing homes that have provided a more caring and home-like environment for elders. But I think the dominant uh, model has been has been one that has been more uh, dehumanizing and um, like an institution cold. And so now we're at a point where um, people are aware of the problems in the nursing home model, and more and more people are choosing home care. A recent AARP survey showed that 90% of Americans prefer to age at home in place, connected to their communities and families. And I think that that actually makes a lot of sense. It's a People are familiar in their homes and communities. It's much easier to live life on your own terms, to eat when you want to eat, to um, go places when you want to go places, to have control and self-determination. I think that that's a big, a big theme and one that has been a part of the dehumanizing nature of the nursing home model where um, things like eating and sleeping and going to the bathroom and all of these things are um, really determined for you as opposed to really being able to live life on your own terms. Yeah, you talk about um, the sort of ecosystem of care, um, different pieces of a puzzle fitting together across the family. Um, how do you see the work of uh, unpaid family givers family caregivers who are maybe, you know, relatives of the person working alongside professional care providers. How do you see those two systems fitting together and kind of complementing each other? I think that family caregivers and paid caregivers or professional caregivers are part of a continuum of care that we're going to need uh, to support the 27 million of us who are going to need some form of long-term care assistance by the year 2050. It's really, it's really an all-hands-on-deck um, opportunity and situation. And I think that the, it's, it's been proven through lots of research that the more coordination and collaboration and really the more of a sense of a team um, there is between families, family caregivers, and professional caregivers, and, and the whole circle of healthcare professionals that are involved the more there can be a, a continuum and a good coordination and communication across those different roles in the care circle, the better the quality of life and ultimately the more impactful the care. Um, so I think that family caregivers and paid caregivers are absolutely two vital pieces of one puzzle that fit together to, to support the millions of us who are going to need support. You write that it is often assumed that women will absorb these tasks as they have for much of our country's history, but that is not going to happen in 21st century America. Can you talk about the way women are assumed to naturally be inclined to care and how this has created the exploitation of care workers? Well, women are really on the front lines of this growing demand for care sort of on, 
on all sides of the equation. Women are living longer so that more and more of the people who are going to need care and assistance are actually women like my grandmother. Um, and then most of the family caregiving, over 70% of it is still done by women. Um, despite the fact that at least half of the paid workforce is also women. So women are holding both the lion's share of the family caregiving work still and also working in the workforce in addition. Um, and then over 90% of the paid caregiving workforce is also women. And um, it is when it's paid, it's paid extremely low wages, wages that are very difficult to survive on. And when it's unpaid, it's often unrecognized and underappreciated. And those are sort of two sides of the same coin, which is that we in our society have not adequately accounted for the work that goes into raising families across generations. There is um, this article that Gloria Steinem wrote uh, over 20 years ago called Revaluing Economics. And she describes the work that goes into raising families, family care work, as sort of one of the two fundamental resources that drives everything else in our economy and society, the other being the planet's natural resources, the environment. And those two resources have been made invisible and often exploited and certainly unprotected and such that it's we've created an unsustainable um, both economic and social reality. And that's fundamentally what has to kind of flip in order to, for us to find sustainability in the 21st century, that ultimately we need to put uh, valuing care work, family care work, and the planet's natural resources at the center of our vision for the future to try to shift this fundamental dynamic that has led to women bearing the brunt and really an unsustainable situation for anyone, not just with women. Yeah. Um, you discuss uh, your work with domestic workers um, over time, and you actually started out here in New York City um, organizing domestic workers with Domestic Workers United. Can you talk about how your exploration with organizing that sector has evolved and how it's brought you to this sort of subset of care work um, or of domestic work and, you know, how Caring Across Generations fits in with Domestic Workers Alliance and Domestic Workers United. The National Domestic Workers Alliance represents 45 local affiliate organizations in 26 cities around the country, all representing uh, nannies, housekeepers, and caregivers for the elderly. And it's all women who go to work every day in other people's homes doing the work that makes all other work possible. It's that invisible work that Gloria Steinem says really drives the rest of the economy and society forward. And um, we started out really articulating how valuable this work was so that we could really raise awareness and raise a level of respect for this work. Um, and to establish basic protections, to really try to undo the legacy of exclusion and discrimination against this workforce that's been codified in our labor law. Um, and many people don't know this, but domestic workers and workers were excluded from our nation's core labor protections that are part of the New Deal um, in the 1930s. And those exclusions have defined much of 
reality for generations of domestic workers, and we are still in a situation where home care workers are excluded from even minimum wage protections, over a million of them. They're called companions. Um, they're called help to about everything except for the professionals that they are. And I think our journey through realizing how much at the core of this was about a devaluing of the work that women have historically done to care for families across generations, that invisible work in our homes that powers everything else, that that was really at the heart of it. In addition to the kind of structural racism that has led to the exclusion of this workforce being really written into the law um, and shaping our kind of framework for how we value work in this country. And so between those two things, I think it really helped us understand that there are so many people who have a stake in transforming this for um, for the future. And so that whether it's women who are grappling with work and childcare um, and don't get enough support and can't afford childcare and can't find the right situation for childcare, um, or it's, um, it's the farm worker who has struggled to um, raise their wages over time, or I mean, there's so many potential people who share um, an interest with us in raising the level of respect and recognition for this work. And then as we started to understand the changing demographics where um, 27 million of us are going to need long-term care assistance and 90% of us would rather that happen in our homes, we just realized how much this workforce is a part of the solution to so many of our nation's challenges ahead that whether it's about making sure that people like my grandmother have the ability to live life on their own terms, in their homes, aging in place, um, connected to these, or whether it's about transforming a low-wage work sector that's now the fastest growing work occupation in the economy into a good job that you can take pride in as millions more of these jobs are going to emerge, right? That so there's so much at stake here. It's not just about domestic work and whether they're protected by the law, but it's really about the values that will shape the economy of the future and what the social contract will look like and who it will include and who it will uplift and what kind of opportunity it will create. You mentioned the way that these specific exclusions have affected domestic workers, and we're seeing that we saw that in the case of Harris versus Quinn, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, where the, you know, it seemed fairly obvious that these anti-union groups were targeting this, quote, special class of workers in order to try to use them as a wedge to attack all public sector workers. So, yeah, can you talk about the way that this idea of a special class of workers has actually helped to draw wages down and create worse conditions for all workers? Well, I think if, you, if, it's, if it's possible to devalue any one form of work, um, then it opens up the door to creating lots of other, it creates a downward gravitational pull within our economy. Um, it makes it possible for other sectors to create special exclusions and exemptions and all of a sudden you're looking at an economy where 30% of the workforce is working in contingent and unstable 
part-time temporary kinds of work arrangements. And so I think that in some ways, domestic workers are canaries in the mine. And I also think that it's um, provided an opportunity for us to make domestic workers protagonists in thinking about what kind of economy we need to create for the future. And if it's possible to organize domestic workers and it's possible to raise wages for home care workers, then uh, it will be possible to do that for all of these other workers who are vulnerable in this economy. So I think it's both a challenge and also um, it's a weakness or has created a lot of vulnerability for our sector. But what it's meant is that we've had to be very creative in finding solutions and how we think about the kind of power we're building as a movement and how we go about building that power. And I think that it um, is instructive for how we need to be building movements for the future that really do account for the new nature of work in our economy. Caregiving needs and uh, the goals that families set for the kind of care they want to give are often uh, really tied to cultural factors. Um, and when you're dealing with such a diverse workforce and such a diverse um, base of people who need care, um, what might be some of the cultural barriers that we'll need to deal with and, um, you know, how, how might we overcome them or uh, learn to kind of uh, understand them better? I think two really big uh, cultural barriers are, one, our fear of aging and our denial of aging as a sort of fear and denial as the two sort of dominant responses when thinking about what it means to grow older in this country. Um, I think that there isn't enough of a cultural embrace and acceptance of that it is a natural part of life and also can bring a lot of joy and wisdom. There's something about how we feel and think about growing older, living longer, aging, that needs to shift in this country. And of course, which we've already talked about, there's also the way that we need to value caregiving and the work that goes into caring for families differently. That's a big cultural norm that just has to change and our our economic circumstances are demanding that change, and our demographic reality is demanding change on the aging front. So I, I feel very optimistic that we will be seeing a cultural tide turning, um, or a cultural turning of the tide very soon um, on both of those questions. In fact, it's already starting, as far as I can tell. Um, but they're big ones. They've been pretty dominant. A theme that you return to again and again in the book is um, the immigrant background of, of the caregivers and also the families that are receiving care. Um, can you talk about your work with uh, the coalition We Belong Together and how that fits with your um, advocacy for domestic workers and for care workers specifically? Yeah, so We Belong Together is a women's campaign for a fair immigration reform that was started out of the recognition that just about everyone who cares about families and cares about women and the security uh, uh, and opportunity for women should care about immigration reform. And what I mean by that is that essentially what's at stake is the um, security of families and of women's equality. Um, when we think about 
what the impact of not having a path to legal status for immigrants, for undocumented immigrants means. When we think about the fact that 11 million people are trapped in the shadows, the kinds of vulnerabilities that that creates for women are actually serious. I mean, we're talking about, in some instances, life and death. Um, right away, we, after um, some of the anti-immigrant bills um, were passing in states like Arizona and other places um, a few years ago, we started hearing about women who were of violence, domestic violence, other forms of violence, who were afraid to come forward um, for fear of reporting um, detention or deportation and being separated from their families. So oftentimes you're choosing between um, being separate, risking losing your families and your own physical safety. Um, or when we think about employers who, unscrupulous employers who take advantage of the fact that well, women are afraid of being separated from their families and being deported, um, to use that to take advantage of women in terms of the work that they do, not paying wages or sexual harassment or all kinds of stories that we've heard, that any woman or any, any person who cares about families and the future of the American family has a huge stake in eliminating this, this kind of realm of our society that's trapped in the shadows and makes people vulnerable, um, makes families vulnerable, makes women vulnerable, and creates this unbelievable insecurity within our whole democracy. The other side of that is realizing how much families have at stake when it comes to immigrant caregivers. There's so many American families all over the country who depend on immigrant women to take care of the most precious elements of their lives, their children, their homes, their um, loved ones with Alzheimer's or dementia. And especially when we think about the example of caring for somebody with Alzheimer's, the disruption of having somebody all of, this, all of a sudden appear um, can be hugely um, damaging for somebody who has a chronic illness or who has Alzheimer's. Um, and so I think of my friend Rick, whose mother is being cared for by an undocumented um, caregiver in Staten Island, and they do live in fear of the fact that every day when their caregiver is on their way to work, she risks detention or deportation. So there's so many people who have a stake in uh, the ability of women and caregivers and really all undocumented immigrants to come out of the shadows into the full light of our economy and actually have the opportunity to legalize and participate and contribute to this country fully. Mm -hmm. What are some models that you've developed for um, you know, paid caregivers in terms of a good employer-employee relationship? Um, you talked about how the traditional labor management roles are uh, don't really apply um, when you're working in a home. So um, what have been some innovations that you think that help kind of, uh, you know, think about the employee relationship in a new way? Well, we work with a group called Hand in Hand, and together we're developing a fair care pledge that employers can take that really demonstrates that they are aware that their home is someone's workplace and they're committed to fairness in that relationship, that caregiving relationship. Um, and the Fair Care Pledge has three elements to it. Uh, the first is fair pay, the second is paid time off, and the third is a clear work agreement. 
So those three elements provide a really solid foundation for there to be a healthy and fair relationship in the home-based employment relationship. And um, we're finding that employers are actually thinking, finding it very helpful because oftentimes um, they want to do the right thing and are just not quite clear what that is. Um, and for those who do know what it is and are not doing the right thing, it just provides a clear kind of poll or a clear standard for the industry, given that so much of it has been kind of a Wild West free-for-all of, you know, everything is sort of at the whim of individual households and employers. Well, here's a very clear set of guidelines and principles for how to think about this relationship, and we're hoping that um, everyone can help us really promote it as as what it means to be fair and as a as a really good starting point for thinking about how what value should shape this relationship in the future. In the book, you also mentioned the example of care worker co-ops, like the Cooperative Home Care Associates in New York. Can you talk about the ways um, and the benefits that co-ops have for care workers who have low overhead but are often really isolated in their work? Sure. Um, so worker-owned cooperatives are a really important kind of model for an alternative way of structuring an organization or a business such that workers have control and can actually define the conditions of their work and the terms of their work. Um, Cooperative Home Care Associates is the shining model. It's uh, based in the Bronx and has over a thousand, maybe up to two thousand members now. And the workers own the company and they set the wages and they set the terms and the working conditions and they've created a viable, strong agency that provides quality care to thousands of people in the Bronx. And it really does show what's possible. Um, now, it's it's something that's hard to build. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes a really strong commitment to purpose and values, but it is something that um, is certainly worth trying to build in other contexts um, around just thinking about what's possible when workers have the ability to define, have more control of the terms of employment. And some of the values that shape the cooperative home care model can actually be applied in any agency, um, and we're hoping that they will be, that they can be promoted, whether they're a worker-owned cooperative or not. That fairness and a culture are really honoring the contributions of workers and their ability to actually control and define the terms of their work, that that actually can be applied anywhere. So to, to wrap things up, um, it seems to me when I'm reading your book that in calling for society to revalue care, you're, it really ends up calling for a fairly radical change to our societal structure, but yet the way you do it through people's personal stories makes it seem like not an insurmountable challenge, but a, a shift that will benefit everyone. Um, it actually made me think of Naomi Klein's reference in her book to how we need to revalue care part of the solution to climate change. So I'm wondering, what other kinds of changes do you think we'd see in a society that really valued care? We would see enormous potential on the part of women, working women who are also family caregivers, being just released into the universe. Um, all of that creative energy and talent and all of those contributions that are really um, dampened by the lack of an infrastructure and support for care 
for family care. So we'd see women's leadership and women's contributions in the workplace and in the economy just flourish. Um, I think we would see uh, the transformation of two really key low-wage work sectors into really good jobs for the 21st century, child care and elder care work, um, that we could actually take those jobs from poverty wage work that is invisible and undervalued and transform them into the kind of professional jobs with opportunities for career advancement and where each generation could do better than the next, similar to what we did with manufacturing in the 1920s and 30s. We could make sure that every single one of our loved ones who's growing older and needs support to live life on their own terms actually has the support to do that. And, and the list really goes on and on. And ultimately, we would have a much more sustainable um, and balanced relationship between our lives, that it, our family lives, our lives that are about um, taking care of and raising our loved ones, our children, um, our aging loved ones, that, that that world and that of our lives would not be in so much tension with um, our work lives and our creative lives and all the other dimensions of who we are, that there would be a, a more balanced relationship between all of the aspects of who we are as, as people. And that was Ai-jen Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance speaking to us about her book, The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. It's our picks of the week. So uh, my pick was from Columbia Journalism Review. David Uberti looks at the survey results uh, of a study on freelance journalists um, done by the advocacy group Project Word, uh, which tracks trends in the industry. Um, basically, the takeaway from this is that not only is it probably as bad as you thought it was, but freelance work might be actually a lot worse than you might have thought. Um, you know, not only are freelance journalists having increasing trouble making ends meet, but uh, the entire infrastructure of the industry is sort of imploding on itself. Um, rarely do you see uh, journalists who are able to live as freelancers and cobble together enough funding from various sources to truly sustain themselves and do the kind of important uh, re investigative reporting that, um, that you know, really does justice to the issues. Part of this is a reflection of the sad state of journalism in and of itself, where we have um, a lot of newsrooms resorting to whatever gets as many clicks as possible, whether it's, uh, you know, listicles or advertorials or whatever, um, increasingly less space available for doing in-depth, long-form narrative reporting um, and, you know, big enterprise stories that might take a year to report before you come up with something. Well, you know, a lot of that is might be done on spec or um, might be done through a grant and through very unstable funding sources. And in the at the end of the day, since you're not really compensated in any equitable way for the time that you spend working on a piece, um, you end up making maybe, you know, 
a few cents to a dollar per word and you come up with a couple thousand dollars at the end of a year-long investigation. Um, that's the daily reality that many journalists face and, uh, you know, counter to the do-what-you-love uh, ethos where, you know, if you build it, they will come and you're supposed to just, you know, immerse yourself in the most fulfilling professional work and apparently, uh, you know, money will just rain from the skies. Um, that work is seldom rewarded. And in fact, it's often punished. Um, many of the respondents said that they were forced to dig into their own pockets to finance their own investigative journalism work. Uh, so not only are they, you know, making paltry wages off of their work, but they're actually, you know, having to pay out of pocket in order to do uh, their professional calling. Um, unfortunately, this seems to be a growing trend among newsrooms, and as newsrooms shrink altogether, many people are forced into the freelance market because there are no employers out there who are willing to sustain, um, you know, a, a core stable of uh, investigative journalism who, you know, can't just publish 250 word listicles every day. So um, while compensation falls and uh, newsrooms continue to shrink their budgets and uh, freelance and, you know, 1099er um, conditions grow ever more precarious, um, you see, unfortunately, um, very little in the way of actually organizing workers or um, providing some sort of collective organizational response to this. But there is hope. Um, about 93% of the respondents, albeit it wasn't a huge sample size, but 93% of the people who responded said that they would be interested in joining some sort of a collective journalistic organization that would allow them to um, exchange information, to advocate for better labor conditions, um, to fight for labor rights uh, together. Um, and many said that, quote, such an organization could potentially help newsrooms vet freelancers for quality or experience. So it would actually be sort of a win-win for the industry, if that's even possible at this point. So, you know, there are new ways of thinking about freelance labor. Um, and hopefully there's, you know, there are some promising models on the horizon. But currently, it's a pretty grim situation. And related to care work and care workers and the discussion of care workers' jobs, my ARG for this week is by frequent ARG recipient and one-time belabored guest host Bryce Covert of Think Progress. Bryce shares with me an obsession with the women who do this care work and, of course, with the idea that women especially would benefit from a renewed movement for shorter working hours. And she got an exclusive look at a new report from the Paraprofessional Healthcare Institute that details the working conditions of these home care workers. It is not a pretty picture, as belabored listeners are probably aware. Bryce notes, while average wages are on paper above the federal floor of seven twenty-five an hour, there are all sorts of reasons why in practice it actually falls below minimum wage, according to Abby Marcond, PHI's Director of Policy Research. Many of them are not paid for overtime or travel time, paid barely above minimum wage just for the hours they're actually there with the client. Unpredictable and part-time hours reduce their average pay even more so that their median annual earnings are just about 13000 a year. Adjusted for inflation, home care aides wages have actually fallen 5% over the last 10 years, even as their field has grown and continues to be one of the fastest growing in the nation. Meanwhile, their jobs, as we just discussed, are often disrespected as not real work, even though they are incredibly physically taxing. The rate of on-the-job injuries that resulted in missed work was about twice that of the rest of the labor force. We've spent most of today's show talking about care workers, but unfortunately, until the broader society begins taking this work seriously and treating it as labor that has value, we're likely to keep having to have this conversation. So, tell everybody you know, home care work is real work and deserves to be paid and treated fairly. 
And that'll do it for this week. Thanks for joining us on Belabored. As always, you can find us on Twitter at hashtag Belabored. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And tune in next time. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org and join us online using hashtag belabored.